if you go to somebody and you don't understand their values or their emotions or how they're going to respond to it, and you just start talking to them about statistics or about numbers or percentages, it's very hard for them to connect with that at, at an emotional level. Hey everybody, how's it going? Welcome to Your Forest, I'm Matthew Kristoff. Uh, this podcast, we talk about environmental sciences. If this is your first time, that's what you can look forward to. Today's episode, however, uh, less about environmental sciences, more just about science, period. Uh, I brought on Matthew Piper. Matthew Piper is the co-owner and principal of Fuse Consulting, and he's an ecologist and science communicator. So the reason I wanted to bring him on is I think in this day and age, there's a lot of confusion around science, right? And there's a lot of misrepresentation and a lot of misleading, you know, titles and stuff like that out there when it comes to the media. And not that we've focused on media, but I just wanted to talk about the scientific method, and why it's the, you know, the best thing we have for answering the big questions and for answering questions in general, right? It's really the only tool we have to be definitive about those answers. And I wanted to kind of hit that point home with Matthew, who's been communicating science for a long time. Uh, very awesome guy. Really like talking to him. Um, we got into basically how how we can communicate science better, how we can approach bigger audiences, how we can get people interested in science, and how we can make it easier for, for people to get involved and to feel like they're not on the outside of scientific research and they can feel like they can understand, right? So I think it's an important topic. And I think if you're in any industry that has any kind of science behind it, which every industry does, um, or you ever give talks or you just want to know a little bit more about the scientific method and that kind of stuff, this is an excellent podcast to listen to. I think you guys will like it. Um, yeah, it was great to get him on. Uh, sponsors for today's podcast, Greenlink Forestry, Damaged Timber Apparel, uh, that's damagedtimber.com. You can get 10% off at if you put in your forest tent at checkout. Uh, they have, you know, toques and hats and shirts and all kinds of stuff. Check them out. And uh, also the primary sponsor for this podcast for 2019 is uh, West Fraser Mills through the Forest Resource Improvement Association of Alberta. Uh, couldn't thank them enough. Thank you so much for supporting this. Uh, it allows me to continue to do it and pay for advertising and all that stuff. And uh, yeah, allows me to justify it. So thanks, thanks so much for your support. Uh, yeah, without any further messing around, let's get right into it. Uh, let's talk about the scientific method, scientific communication with Matthew Piper. Here we go. Like I was telling you yesterday, the way I want to start it off is talking about the importance of scientific, well, the scientific method, I suppose, to start with that, right? Because I think science communication is one that's, or science in general is one that's lost on a great deal of the public. They, I mean, I don't want to get into social media and that kind of stuff, but they, you know, they hear a headline or they read a, a specific one article or one one paper and they just take that and that's God's word and they just go with it, right? And they repeat it at nauseum and it, they don't understand that it, re it requires the full body of work to, in order to figure it out, right? So I wanted to talk about the scientific method, what kind of what that is, and then get into like how people can like get involved in that kind of thing, right? So 
if you want to start off, just kind of explain to me that you've been doing this for a long time, the science communication thing. So how would you explain the scientific method to people that like don't understand it? Yeah, so that's a good question. And it's one that doesn't often come up, but I think is an important one to be talking about. So, I mean, the scientific method in its simplest form is a scientist comes up with a question and a research question, and they determine what methods they're going to use to test that question. And then they go out and conduct the study in forestry. You know, it's often involves field work and what have you, and they come back with the data and they process that, analyze that, and then they attempt to publish a paper in a peer-reviewed scientific journal. And essentially, you know, what that means is that other scientists have to very carefully critique and look at that paper or that publication and determine whether, in fact, it did follow the scientific method and determine whether the methods were robust and whether it's worthy of publication. Right. And so it's actually a, a fairly robust means of actually producing a single paper. Um, and other scientists have critiqued that through what's called the peer review process. But it's interesting what you mentioned is that in the media, what we often see is a single study, right? So we often, uh, any media reports that come out, they'll focus on a single study. So this sing single study said X conclusion or what have you. And it's, you know, there was a funny example of this on John Oliver's uh, Last Week Tonight show. And yeah. so he talked about a study that, that was brought up and the, the media release said that um, by smelling farts, we could help prevent cancer. <laughs> and so it's this kind of ridiculous idea. Um, and what the study actually found is that when cells get under stress, they release hydrogen sulfide to actually protect the mitochondria inside that cell. And so it's like this self-preservation method. But, right. <laughs> you know, the media kind of spun that out to talk about, you know, the healthiness of, of farts from a cancer prevention perspective. Well, so that happens all the time too, right? Like my favorite example that I even told you the other day was the meat one. Like it was a few years ago, I think they said, meat causes cancer, right? And it was like, okay. And then you look into the study and what the study actually says is preservatives have a link to cancer, right? It has nothing to do with meat, it has preservatives, right? And it's, but it's that misleading nature of it that just leads people to jump on and go, yeah, see, like I feel vindicated. Like I've, I've been saying it forever, like don't do that or whatever. So it's, um, yeah, it's, 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 it's interesting that how many people, cause I think so many people are naturally curious and intrigued and it's, it's part of human nature to want to ask questions and learn about stuff, but we often stop at the confirmation of our own ideas. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. And I mean, it's like confirmation bias, right? So all of us have our own ideas. And when we see things that confirm that our ideas are correct, we, we gravitate towards those. And when we see things that might suggest that we have the wrong interpretation of things, we tend to look at those a little bit more critically, right? And, and it's because it's human nature, right? But you, I mean, you mentioned the whole idea of the value of a single study. And so Part of the thing we have to keep in mind is that single studies in and of themselves don't make good policy direction or management direction for companies or whatever it might be, because a single study is meant to contribute or answer a single question, right? And so the value of science is when we look at the, the whole body of science. So when we look at multiple studies and multiple publications that have come out on a topic and you know, one specific example that I, I often use is, and it's relevant to forestry and conservation in, in Alberta here, is 
is around how much old forest should we have on our landscapes. And so, you know, you can look at the scientific literature and there will be some studies where they report a very aggressive disturbance return interval. So essentially what that means is that fires come back to that landscape more often, disturbing the forest. And so we have younger forests and, and less old forest on those landscapes. But you can also find studies that have very conservative uh, disturbance return intervals. And so what those studies suggest is that we should actually have more old forest on the landscape. And so the thing we have to keep in mind is that drawing on one individual study of those, it, it's not actually that valuable from a policy perspective. But yeah. drawing on the broader body of that work is really where it comes, uh, where where the value comes from. Yeah, no, for sure. And it's it, and we have to remember that the people doing these research, this research, right? They're also people and they're also prone to bias and to wanting to confirm their own ideas, the same as non-researchers, right? So there's, and, and, and also what are the interests that are, that are, you know, why is this person asking this question, right? So it's, it's super difficult for somebody to admit that their life's work turns out that what they believed was wrong, but there's, there's huge, there's a huge amount of, uh, of good that comes out of that, right? Because if someone spent their entire life thinking one thing and researching it diligently and trying to figure it out, and they turn out at the end of their at the end of their career that what they thought was wrong, that's awesome. Because now you just you just prove something to the entire scientific community, regardless of whether or not you were right or wrong. You provided a huge service to society, right? And it's but it's I guess what I'm saying is yeah, you're right. That I think most people misunderstand that you know, science, like, oh, one study, it's like, well, science proves it. Like, that's science, right? Like, those those four people, th those are science, right? That, those are the only ones doing it. Like, they, so people forget to step outside their their own perception and, and recognize it from different angles. Because you're right, there's a million papers done. And, like, you look at something as simple as diet, which is totally unrelated to this podcast, but, like, something like diet, it seems like every six months, you know, science, in quotations, changes what – it says we should be eating or shouldn't be eating, right? Because it's and it's confusing to people, so they think that science has no idea what's going on. Whereas the true scientific method is just this slow and steady progression that eventually figures itself out through right. all the failures, right? Yeah, and the reality of that example is that it's not the science that's changing its mind all the time; it's the media picking and choosing what's what's being reported on, right? If you look at the broader body of science, there's actually quite a bit of consistency in those conclusions. I think the other piece is that, you know, as much as we don't think scientists have bias, it, you know, every every individual is human, but science itself is difficult to be biased because of the scientific method. If you're a highly biased scientist, and even if you manage to publish, uh, the broader community is designed to critique, and, and, and I even use the term argue, about these various topics. Yeah. And the benefit of as as members of the public is that when there is conclusive evidence on a topic we know that we can believe that because it's been heavily debated and heavily critiqued and lots of arguments have happened around that topic and climate change is a perfect example i was just gonna say where <laughs> like we you know there's there's perceptions that all the scientists must be biased and that's why we're getting all these conclusions no in fact this is a heavily critiqued discipline and this is a broad body of evidence that is consistently reporting about the the impacts of climate change and and the causes of climate change and so 
as members of the public, we can have a lot of confidence in that because it's that broad body of work. It's not a single study. Yeah. No, that's exactly it, right? Climate change is, is a perfect example because there's still so much resistance to you know believing in a, what we know now as a scientific fact. But when people say that, a lot of people automatically just get emotional and they get, you know what I mean? They get heated and they go, no, it's not. Like it's, that's, it's all propaganda and it's bullshit right. and it's whatever it, they, they want to think, right? Because it invades their, I guess, their perception of reality or their perception of their world and how they view it. And it's, I mean, I understand it. If, 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 if I come across, I get, I get heated when people come at me with that kind of stuff, right? And it takes a long time to, to learn to curb that emotion. Um, but yeah, it's, it's, Climate change is a weird one for that, for that matter, for sure, because it just brings in so much of that, and people, for whatever reason, are so reluctant to believe in it. But it's not even a belief thing anymore. It's like that's it is what it is, man. Like, yeah, yeah. And I think one of the key things to keep in mind is that we are all humans, and we all have emotions, right? And so that's one of the key pieces that we talk a lot about in science communication. Um, you know, in the scientific discipline itself emotions aren't talked about that yeah. much but the reality is is that the audiences that we're trying to reach ourselves you know you yeah. and i we have our own emotions and those always come into play because our emotions also inform our values right so when you see a study that suggests that maybe there's more old forest on the landscape than there historically was or somebody else sees that there's there's more old forest or less. We all interpret that through our own lenses and through our own values, right? And and that those are driven by our emotions and our previous experiences. And it's something that we don't often talk about when we're talking about science, but it, it it's a reality when when we're trying to reach different audiences. Oh yeah, oh absolutely, yeah. The the, the old growth forest one is definitely one that I I still am confused about. Right? There's so many arguments from that one, but. Anyways, before we get down a rabbit hole of <laughs> how much old growth is too much or whatever, but um, so what are like, what do you think are some tools that like individuals or organizations or, or researchers themselves can use to try to um, convince people to you know, follow this scientific method and really like do their own research instead of just grabbing onto the headlines and like, you know, going with the flow of the, you know, the, what the media says. Do you know? Yeah. Yeah. So there's, there's kind of a range of tools and techniques that we ought, we've found a lot of value in when we're communicating science. Um, and, and it kind of boils down to three core elements for us, really. One is that uh, finding ways where we can connect, connect with our emotions uh, and I can get into a few examples of how how we can do that. The second one is around how we frame what we're communicating. So, uh, and what we really advocate is starting with why. Uh, and then the third one is finding ways where we can maintain the credibility of of the the communication or the argument or whatever the case might be. So when I talk about uh, engaging our emotions. What we often think about in the scientific discipline is is it's a very it's a conversation that exists in our head, and so we're processing facts and we're processing data, and we like to think that it can just stay in our head, and it's it's a simple logical process of of in, interpreting that information. But what a lot of science communicators talk about is a necessity is that we move it from our 
heads down into our hearts with sincerity and then we can even move it into our gut with humor right and so if we can start to incorporate those principles we can really um, be much more effective with our science communication approaches well so it's because it's funny right you you go to science class in high school or in university or whatever wherever you're at right some and a lot of the professors that you get or the teachers that you get are just, they're very monotone and very, you know what I mean? They kind of given up on life a bit. <laughs> and although they're excited about the science, they've totally given up on the teaching aspect because they don't know how to do it, right? It's just, it's such a complicated means of trying to, you know, get information across. And it's that lack of emotion that keeps people from caring, right? It keeps kids from giving a shit about what, like, you know what I mean? Like, I, I think as an adult, I've grown so much more attached to the scientific method and to its capacity to you know find answers and really it's the only tool we have in this day and age to actually find answers to questions right and i'm 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 frustrated that i didn't find that love of those questions and that intrigue as a child where i think i would have but i don't think it was ever really explained to me i'm sure it was explained to me but not in a passionate exciting you know what I mean? Engaging way. It was just like science is the way in which we determine everything. And they're just like, okay, whatever that means. Right. So it's, it's, I mean, I do see a lot more communicated, a lot more researchers doing a lot more like engaging conversations and trying to be excited. And like a, a lot of the problems, they just read off a script or read a PowerPoint or whatever. Right. And it just, you can hear, like you can, you can tell if you're listening to a recording, and I started reading a sentence that I wrote down right here. You can immediately tell when I went from like just speaking passionately to reading, right? And it sounds super like just unattractive in every way. So it's, I think it's a like a science communication itself. It's interesting that it's taken us this long to recognize that there's a problem in communicating something as important and exciting as scientific findings, right? Yeah, yeah, and that's fair. And you know, to a certain extent, we might, we might put too high of expectations on our lecturers or on our scientists. So I'll give a perfect example. We just, you know, a couple hours ago did personality assessments in our office with nice. all of our staff. <laughs> and and if, if we had a bunch of scientists and academics in the room, they would have all been of very much like a, a data-driven, critiquing, questioning, critical thinking mindset, right? Mm. And that's how we get the best scientists I because know. <laughs> they are critical because they can engage in debates and arguments and they can really come to understand what the true essence of those findings are right and when we talk about being a really dynamic communicator or reaching out to the public it's an exact opposite personality style in many cases right and so um that's not to say that scientists can't do that um it's to say that we need good tools and some processes and some methods that they can easily and efficiently use to to reach their public. Yeah, yeah, for sure. So what are some of those things that you guys would start doing? Yeah, so one of the things is, is starting with emotions and, and thinking about how you can use humor and sincerity and what have you. So we talked about that already. One of the other things is, that we often use and to good success is how you actually frame what you're communicating. So Simon Sinek is, uh, he's a master communicator. He has a TED talk that's really well received over, I think, 40 million, 500,000 views or something like this. Okay. And he talks about the golden circle and he's wrote the book Start With Why. And so it's a book that as soon as 
a staff member joins our team, they read that book and that's their first piece of professional development because it's so effective. And what Simon Sinek argues or, or what he's found is that everybody can really effectively communicate about their what. So if you're thinking about it from like a marketing perspective, you know, a computer company, the example he talks about is a computer t company talks about what they produce. We produce this really awesome high-powered laptop. And he mentions that some companies can talk about how they got to that excellent laptop, but very few companies start with why. And very few companies talk about their belief system or their culture and how buying into that belief system and that culture creates this really amazing product, right? And so he talks about completely shifting the way we communicate. And it's extremely relevant to science as well, because when we often when we're trying to communicate science out to the public, we just communicate what? So, yeah. you know, wolves travel faster on seismic lines than they do in the intact forest. That's an example that I often use. But being able to actually communicate why and to engage people through that communication and through connecting with why, that's how we can really make a difference there. So in the case of science, maybe it's helping them understand some of the underlying processes or the underlying drivers behind it. Uh, or maybe if you're trying to communicate what you want to see in terms of a new management implication because of your science, you can start with why. Why is the topic important? Who cares? What could they do about it? Who are the decision makers that we're trying to connect with? Um, yeah, and, and just rethinking the way that we communicate can really help draw the audience in and then you have their attention to listen to what the facts are. Right. That's a good point, though. What you said was, uh, like, who cares? Right? Like, wh why? Like, what you're saying, why? Who cares? Like, so one of the questions that I've recently found myself asking when I am in conversations with people, especially on the podcast, is, like, why should people care? Right? Because you can say, yeah, why such and such has an impact on such and such. But if it's not relevant to someone's life directly then they don't have a direct path to caring. So why should they listen and why should they have like any kind of impact on that, right? So yeah, I think that's an interesting one asking that, just starting with, yeah, why should people care? Why, what's the importance here, right? It's, yeah. And it, it provides the opportunity to connect with someone's values. Mm -hmm. So if you understand your audience and you understand their values and why they should care, then you can start from that place you can start from that common foundation you can connect with them at that level and then you can present your your data or your statistics if if you go to somebody and you don't understand their values or their emotions or how they're going to respond to it and you just start talking to them about statistics or about numbers or percentages it's very hard for them to connect with that at, at an emotional level yeah well big time yeah because it's just it's just it's just too much information too fast and it's just a, there's a lot of jargon involved and there's a lot of it's just it, it's too much right and even though that the outcomes of that research is is likely interesting and has an impact on something it, it's yeah if you, without asking why why you know people aren't going to pay attention right and if, if no one's paying attention then what was the point of the research and then it's not going to have an impact on you know what i mean on future society so it's yeah, it's an interesting point for sure. And I guess a big problem with that is also like scientific papers themselves, right? Like reading a scientific paper is some of the, because it's so concise and every word is perfectly placed and there's no, you know what I mean? There's very, if there is any like 
any kind of graphics. It's just a, a chart, right, or some kind of statistics. And it's not it's not very unless you know what p values are, you're not going to know what the hell they're talking about, right? So it's I would love to see in the future more research studies being first of all being made available to people that they can find online, right, without having to pay you know fifty dollars a month for a, a journal subscription, but also more. I, like I think like the simplicity of it, right? Like I think so often we're communicating science, we use jargon and we use these complicated words that make it, it's it's like a barrier to entry, right? Like people, like if you can't explain what like what you're doing in simplistic terms, it's not dumbing it down. You're just using simple non-jargon terms. Then I don't think you really understand it, right? Like it's it's it's, I think it's important to be able to explain it to, like the sixth grader they should be able to get what you're saying right but if they if they don't then how are they how is anybody ever going to really care right so i would love to see scientific papers that have you know they're more not like i said not dumbed down just more i guess less less elitist right and not to say that scientists are elitist they're just saying that the system in which science is created tends to create a a specific person like you were saying right that's very data driven very specific and the words they use are very specific for a specific purpose but it's also like i said it's a barrier to entry to a lot of people right, right. yeah and and i think partially we need to adjust our expectations a little bit in that um in fairness to scientists that jargon and that that very heavy terminology that's difficult for the public to get through is absolutely critical for them being a successful scientist and having respect in their discipline right right? and so it's this (laughs) it's this debate about kind of what the expectations are and things like that and and in many cases you know we want our scientists to have those skills where they can engage in those critical debates and things like that right it's a lot like you know if you go to your surgeon and you need heart surgery you really want them to be an expert in heart surgery, right? Um, But one of the other pieces that I think is really exciting and that we've been doing some work on at Fuse is infographics. So infographics are essentially a um, using visuals and using very simple jargon-free terminology to to reach a broader audience. Uh, And so what we're actually seeing is that a lot of... Uh, scientific journals are actually requesting infographics or they call them graphical abstracts but they're seeing so much uptake from these that it's it's exploding in the scientific journals and most people that are submitting papers now are being asked to submit these graphical abstracts and it's really exciting because you know one of the things that we often draw on is that when you're in a room of Uh, individuals you know the next time you're at a wedding or the next time you're at a school concert or something like that about 50 percent of the people in that room actually learn better through visuals oh yeah right and even the people that don't that are able to just read text and really interpret it and understand it well they will do better they will perform better if they have visuals to guide them so it's you know ikea furniture is a perfect example they don't give you an abstract or text it's visuals because we we can all achieve more success that way. And so scientific journals are really tapping into this. And that's what's exciting about these infographics. They're easy. They are relevant to a broad range of audiences. When a scientist sends it to their uh, industry partner or their government partner, they can quickly take it up. The public can see it on social media. And 
their colleagues in science are also seeing it. So it's a really exciting opportunity. No, oh, that's perfect. That's a good way to put it. Cause you're right. Cause like much of the jargon, it cuts down on space and it cuts down on, it makes sure that everyone that's in that community really understands what's going on, but you're, but it is still a barrier to entry. And so like the infographic makes sense. So the infographic, just to be clear for people who might not know what that means, it's basically mm-hmm. just a graphic representation of the study with some words and some numbers to help people make a connection somehow yeah right yeah that's right so a lot of the ones that we produce they're essentially if you envision a postcard in your hand they're about that size um they've got why is the study important right off the bat and then it talks about some of the findings so we use visuals if it's about grizzly bears or if it's about porcupines or if it's about fish um we will use visuals to help people interpret what that study found and then you have the conclusion at the end and, and the, you know, who cares or, or what, what should we do with this information? And so in a postcard size uh, uh, document, you, you actually have a lot of impact with that. Yeah, no, that totally makes sense because it's just, yeah, like you were saying, most people are visual, right? Myself included, like, yeah, looking at a slide with just a bunch of bullet points on it and just a black screen is, is just, it's insufferable. You just go, oh God, what am I in for, right? But if you have something that's just got, a title and then a picture or like a chart or something that you can just engage with instead of just trying to read. It's yeah, it definitely makes a big difference. Yeah. Um, so something that I meant to ask you at the beginning that I'm going to get to now because I, well, it's, it's very topical (laughs) was why should people care about this kind of stuff? Why should people care about, you know, science and the scientific method? Because I think, again, there's a lot of people that have a hard time believing that it is as, you know, useful as, as we claim it is to get confused by the the complexity of it all. Right. Right. Yeah. I mean, so that's a great question. Should have asked it first. um, The first thing I asked. (laughs) Yeah. I I mean, there's a number of ways that to look at it, but, but I think one of the easiest is if we look at our, our various industries that we have in Alberta here. So the forest industry, you know, you hosted a lot of folks on your podcast relevant to that industry. And one of the things that the forest industry really believes in is uh, this process of continual learning, right? So we try some things on the ground and we have scientific studies that determine what worked and what didn't work. And then we use that information to inform our future management approaches or our future harvesting prescriptions. And some of the most innovative, most forward-thinking companies in the province live and breathe that type of a a model of thinking and the really exciting thing about that is that you know when you look back 10 years 20 years you see how much you've evolved right and so you've been using science to continually improve and to continually you know better manage sustainability and wildlife values and timber values and fiber flow to the mill and all these different variables by committing to use of science and continually learning you really are innovating and you are moving the industry or your discipline forward and you know you could look at it from other perspectives too from a conservation perspective or a parks management perspective that type of continual learning the growth mindset um, the idea that we can always do better and that we use robust science to inform that is is really really key for sure yeah like it's and I guess when I think about it, I mean, I'm, I'm pretty, I, I, I like to think of myself as pretty scientifically minded, like not in the sense that I'm a researcher or anything like that, but I tend to 
view the world pretty critically or I try to. I'm obviously prone to bias and all kinds of stuff, but um, I still think that I, I literally think that science is really the only way forward as far as answering questions, right? Like it's the only thing that I can think of, the only, you can't call it a belief system, but the only methodology that I can think of that allows us to, like you were saying at the very beginning, ask a question and go through very like various levels of scrutiny through peers and outside influences and other questions and come out with a very specific answer, yes or no. And then repeating those same studies or similar studies on and on and on and on and on until we come to some kind of consensus that like, okay, across a hundred studies, a hundred, hundred of the times, you know, this was true. Therefore, okay, I think we can agree that, you know what I mean? Until we find something false about this, we can agree that this is scientifically accurate. And I think there's, there's nothing else in this, on this planet that I can, or any other belief system that I can think of that has even anything even remotely close to that success level, right? Because it is so highly scrutinized and the people doing it are so fantastically critical of everything right which is it it, it can make things difficult but that's what we want we want it to be difficult to pass these ideas right they need to pass the barrier of entry which is the you know what i mean the the complexity that is all these ideas right so it's 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 just been interesting to me when i see people that are resistant to those ideas right because i'm like if you look at it clear like if you look at it objectively, which is hard to do, first of all, <laughs> but if you looked at it objectively, it's very clear. Like this is the answer to all the questions that we have, right? Even questions that are as crazy as, you know, what happened before the Big Bang or is there a God or is time travel possible? It's like science can answer these questions eventually, one day, right? And it's, but it's only through that method, right? So it's it's interesting when I see people that are so adamantly opposed to it. It's it's just weird, right? So it's I, I wonder what are some can you think of any ways like how how can we start to get people that are kind of opposed to these ideas from for whatever reason it is, whether it's a religious perspective or just uh never been exposed to these ideas before, how can we start to get people interested into science and to even if they're not part of the community to to you know read into it and actually try to be critical and have a different perspective, right? How do we get people into that mindset? Right. It's a I big think- question. And I'm <laughs> <laughs> so just, yeah. What do you think? <laughs> I was going to say, it, it, I, I'd be a millionaire if I could answer that question. Yeah, I know. <laughs> I mean, it's, I know. A, it's a million dollar question, right? But one of the things that I, I often talk about and we talk about as a team at, at, our, at Fuse is that, we need to change the way that we think about this. So we need to we need to stop thinking that the people out there are the problem and how do we change their mind mm-hmm. and how do we actually look internally and say what could we be doing better? And that's and, more what I mean is how do how do we change the system so that they can feel I think a big sorry to cut you off but no, that's part fine. of the I just want to get this out here because I'll forget I'm a scatterbrain <laughs> <laughs> if you ever listen to the podcast I'm interrupting <laughs> constantly uh, that's not because I'm rude that's because I don't want to forget my question but um, and now I forgot my question okay <laughs> but I think part of the problem is that it, it does feel to a lot of people that might otherwise be into it that it feels elitist somehow right that feels right. like there's this weird barrier to entry. I'm not smart enough. I can't think that way. Like that's beyond me. Right. Like p- people, loved ones of mine, even that are like, th- 
you know what I mean? They have a high school education and they're really smart people, but they've, they've never been exposed to the scientific method. And it just kind of, it just kind of bewilders them. And they're just, they don't want to get involved because it just seems like too much. Yeah. Right. So you're right. It's, that's what, I guess that's the question I'm asking is how to, how do we make it easier for people to get involved? Right? Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, that's a great question. And, and it's good examples that you were using there. And, um, I think one of the big things from my perspective is it does come back to emotions. So we often think that we shouldn't touch on emotions. And, you know, you think one way and I think another way and the data is showing that I'm right and you're wrong. And so we like to make it very black and white. But when we think about emotions and values, it's very gray, right? Mm -hmm. Oh, big time. And, and so I think one of the things is showing respect to that audience, whoever you're trying to reach, mm -hmm. really genuinely caring about them and trying to interpret and understand their perspective. Mm -hmm. And I can give an example here. It's um, I've been engaging with a, um, so it would be my mother's cousin. Um, <laughs> and, and we've been engaging in discussions for a year and a half now. Um, she's adamantly a against climate change and kind of like anti-climate change and so with the approach that i've been anti-climate change too oh, oh <laughs> pardon me sorry. i know what you're saying i know what sorry. you're saying so she does not believe in climate change yeah. there we go we'll clarify <laughs> um and what i've been trying to do is just show her respect mm. and um not try and attack her and be like you're a total fool because of this. <laughs> what um, do you mean? Talk somebody but, wrong doesn't make them listen? <laughs> <laughs> but more actually engaging in a conversation. And so, you know, asking questions. Well, why do you think that? Or where did you hear that from? Or actually, when I read that, this is what I take away from it. But what you're telling me is that you take away something different from it, right? And so really having that you know i guess it's kind of that emotional intelligence where we can critically reflect we can have patience we can show respect all those types of things um i'm not gonna stand here and celebrate and say that she now believes that climate change is real but i've come to a better appreciation of her perspective and i think she's gained a lot of respect for the scientific perspective and one thing that i'll maybe add to that is that one of the reasons why she responds so negatively to the idea of climate change and climate change science is because she feels victimized and she feels that her her way of thinking and her belief system is being attacked. So, you know, her husband has worked in the oil and gas industry and and she's made a living there and and their family has made a living in that industry. And I so most of the when that yeah. industry is being directly attacked or pigeonholed or we have pipeline debates or all these things, they feel very personally attacked. And so it becomes it's a very emotional foundation to that discussion. You can't blame them, right? They're they're defending what the, what what is their livelihood, right? And that's yeah, no, absolutely. I couldn't agree more. And it's that's a realization that I've only recently come to, I'd say in the last couple of years is that removing like yourself from those emotions, recognizing in yourself when you are feel yourself getting heated about something, right. And you want to start, you know, arguing with somebody and you kind of you recognize that like, okay, I'm getting, I'm starting to talk louder. I'm starting to get a little bit red in the face. Like I can feel the anger. You start to recognize that and just step back and approach it from a perspective or try to approach it from a perspective that is more like you were saying, 
okay, why do you feel that way? Instead of being like, you're an idiot that you think that. That's right. Say, okay, well, why do you think that? Let's yeah. talk about this. And it's it's impossible to do. Like it's so it's so difficult, right? It is difficult. It really, no really is difficult. And but it 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 does take self-awareness to be able to recognize that in yourself in order to but i think you're right like your your mother's cousin right she even though she may still have a lot of skepticism when it comes to climate change i think that's okay i think that's good because when she if she does find herself a little bit more open to it now that you've had a respectful conversation with her about it right she may be a little bit more open to it and may slowly start to bring in more information to try to accept that or try to realize another perspective right and just because we recognize that climate change is real doesn't mean that we're going to shut down you know oil production today because we would all die (laughs) so it's understanding what this means and just because it's something that is against your livelihood doesn't necessarily mean it's not something that we can't work out right Right. it's a weird one like i I always wonder about that because i like even with this podcast i constantly say from my perspective from what I've seen from the research that I've read, wood is one of the truly one of the only truly sustainable resources we have. That being said, there's a lot of naysayers to that, right? So I I I, I do find myself getting heated when I hear people saying stuff against it, right? But also I recognize there's a lot of values at, at risk there as well. So it's it's an interesting one that I think we all have to think about constantly. But you're right. Just it's those small personal it's like it's something I brought up the other day on a podcast, actually, too. Was like, as much as you're online arguing with somebody, right, and, and screaming and being very partisan and or whatever, totally on the opposite sides of one another, you sit in the same room as that person and have a conversation with them for over forty five minutes or an hour. You're not going to be yelling at each other. You're going to be talking about the parts of your different perspectives that you agree upon. Right. And they're going to start to realize each other's sides and like, okay, I see what you're saying. So, and then you start, you, you both get better as people and your, your arguments get better. Right. And ultimately we all move closer to the truth. Right. Which is the scientific method. Right. But it's, I'm off on a tangent. I don't know what the hell I was going to say, but, <laughs> but yeah, it's, a, it's a, it is interesting for sure. Yeah. No. And I, I think you're hitting on a lot of important points. Like one of the things in this, in this discussion with my mother's cousin that I was describing we found common ground on a lot of things. Of course. You know, we can talk about, uh, you know, what, what, um, sorry, we could talk about like wildfires in the Rocky Mountains or in the Eastern Slopes. We can talk about water quality and water flow into the town of Calgary. The, those types of things, by asking questions, you start to build trust and you start to build common ground. And I think, you know, one example that I'd also draw on is, um, through the Healthy Landscapes program at FRI Research, I've been involved in a number of, we call them ecosystem-based management dialogue sessions. So ecosystem-based management, as you're probably well-versed on, is you know one of the, the key paradigms that's used to guide forest management in, in Canada, largely. And what we did is we went around to various communities with a whole range of different stakeholders and just asked some questions to better understand different people's perceptions of ecosystem-based management. And one of the really important outcomes from my perspective of those discussions is that we're starting to build a little bit of common ground and we're starting to build a little bit of trust. So in conversations that traditionally are, you're wrong, I'm right, get out of the room, or whatever, however confrontational those might be, 
by asking questions and by genuinely respecting the other individuals in the room and by asking genuine questions to really understand their viewpoints, I find it fascinating. And you actually come down to things where it's like, you know what, that's that's a fair point. Yeah. And maybe there actually are things that we could do to address that, right? Yeah. And, and I think both sides, you know, if I think about it as sides of the debate, I think if you can come into those conversations with a genuine openness and a genuine opportunity to reflect, you can take some of those nuggets of information away. Um, and, and, you know, ideally, we, we all become better because of that, right? Yeah. Oh, absolutely. Well, in preparation for us talking like on a recorded official situation, I was listening to a bunch of like science communication stuff and there was Alan Alda is famously, you know what I mean, into science communication, that kind of stuff. And he said something that I thought was awesome. And uh, he said, we're, we're not really listening unless we're willing to be changed by the other person. Right. So it's like we're not there's a lot of conversations that you watch, like like any political debate that's ever happened. Right. It's four people in a room talking at each other. No one's really listening to the other person's answer. They just, they have their talking point. They're ready to go and they're going to make fun of you. And they're going to just like, you know what I mean? Pick and choose the things they want to discuss. They're not going to take your points and respond to them. They're just going to do what they think. Right. And it's, it's interesting that idea of listening, like we suck at listening as human beings. It seems like, you know, like really, really listening, right? Like, sure. Like someone can ask you, Oh, were you listening? But yeah, I heard you right? You heard me, but were you really listening to the inflection and the tone? And do you understand what I'm saying and what this means to me? It doesn't, we suck at that. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And, and I mean, we're exposed to it. You know, it's just like when we're exposed to science through the media, we have a certain interpretation of science and we've talked about that, but we also have a certain interpretation of people's perspectives, right? If we, if we through the media and we interpret the science or pardon me, the political debate, we would assume that we either have to really strongly believe X or we really strongly believe Y and that there's no middle ground. Yeah. And in reality, there's a huge spectrum of perspectives. Yeah. All of them have value, but rarely do we actually get into debates or discussions about that. And interestingly enough, I've had five conversations in the last month with people that want to see more genuine discussion around the middle of that spectrum. They want to see people stand up and people feel empowered to really be like, well, let's try and understand each other a little bit more as opposed to the very polarized agenda-driven debates that we're often very um, exposed to. That'd be so attractive to me, like just hearing actual human beings have a conversation around the, but the problem is we have parties, right? And the parties, you have to toe the party line and say what the party says. And so like, I, I don't, I, the only way I ever see that happening is if you just had individual people running right and that was it just the individual there's this is what i think as an individual right but it's but yeah i agree that would be super attractive to recognize that like one of the most exhausting things i come across in politics is when you're walking around and, and someone just like like oh you're a liberal aren't you or you're a you're a socialist or you're a conservative right and it's like first of all if like if you automatically are on one like you automatically pick one of those things and you're not open to any of the debate any of the conversation and you're not right. really paying attention you're not really making a decision based on what you believe you're just automatically assuming that like well the people around me vote for this person so i'll vote for them but it's like it's it's interesting that you're right there's there's a good reason to vote for anybody 
there's great reasons. It's just a matter of how they align with their own beliefs. But it's we never talk about that stuff. Right. It sucks. Yeah, yeah. And I mean, we're covering a lot of ground. I don't mean to get into a political debate, but it oh, is whatever. relevant to some of these <laughs> discussions, right? Yes, yeah. And I think you know the other piece is I don't want the perception to be that that I'm anti-media, right? Like the media plays a very important role in science communication and journalists are under a huge amount of pressure to get stories out and for those stories to grab people's interest, right? Yep. It's not a journalist's job to produce a, an article that nobody wants to read, right? <laughs> and so I don't want the perception to be that we should disrespect what the media is doing, not by by any means, but what we do need to think about is it should be our gateway into the science. So we should see something in the media and it should pique our interest. And then we should try and be a little bit more critical about it and go learn more about it or maybe explore the wider body of science in that field. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, I think that's an important nuance to make sure that that we capture there. Yeah, yeah, for sure. But it's I think these conversations are good just to get people thinking about it, whether they agree or disagree with what anything that we're saying. It's just good to have people thinking about these more nuanced topics that are, right. like you said, very gray. It's not black and white. It's just, it's, it's, it's all in the middle, right? There's a, <laughs> there's a reason for everything, but like how, which one do you, you know, do you think more in which direction, right? It's, yeah, it's a, it's a, it's a crazy conversation, but um, do you have any kind of final notes or anything or any resources maybe that you want to put out to people about like how to do maybe like for a researcher or, or even just a, a, a practitioner in their industry or something that wants to be a better communicator about their own job, their own work, their own research, right? So what are some of those resources or some of those tools that people could use? Yeah, so I think the first and most absolutely most important piece is that I really believe that absolutely anyone can do this. Um, and, and, and I know that through my own experience. You know, I... I don't have a science background in my in my family and my family's not that great of communicators either <laughs> but I, i've made a career in science communication right and so i truly believe that anyone can do this what you need to do is you need to be focused and you need to be able to find the resources that you need you need to be able to invest the time in that professional development and you need to be really willing to take a few risks and try some new techniques. So the next time you give a talk to your colleagues, you try some of these techniques. Or the next time you're in a meeting with friends or, or in a business meeting, you try some of these techniques. And you're willing to take those risks to really push yourself and to help yourself grow. You know, I, I really believe in the mentality that, you know, we often kind of look at people that seem to be like all stars and we're like, oh man, they, they must just be born with it, right? <laughs> and that's, it couldn't be farther from the truth. It's just that they put in the hours and the time and the effort and the training and they push themselves and they took risks, right? And so recognizing that that that's, that truly is a way that anyone can do it. So I, I think that's a, a really important message to share um, but the other thing is that, you know, there's a variety of resources that I think are out there and that are absolutely excellent. We talked about Simon Sinek's book, Start With Why. Uh, he also has a TED Talk and it's 20 minutes. So if you're tight on time, that could be an excellent gateway into, into just thinking differently about how you can communicate about these things. The other book that I would strongly recommend, it's called Made to Stick, and the subtitle is Why Some Ideas Survive and Others Die. 
and it's by the Heath brothers, and they're both psychologists, and so they look at communication and the way messages stick with people uh, through a psychology lens, and it's extremely powerful. It's very well written, and they give very specific examples so you can see exactly how these different techniques work. So those would be two really excellent resources for people that, you know, start your professional development time on that yeah. and, and read those books. And I think they'll really kind of start that engine of creativity and inspiration. Nice. I wish I would have read those books before we had this conversation. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure it'll like change my thinking a little bit. Right. But yeah, yeah that's cool. Cause like you were saying, you listen to, um, like you listen to a lecture or something like that. Right. And although a lot of it might be interesting, you may be totally engaged. You walk away with like a percent or 10% of the information really. Right. Yeah. And why does that stick? Yeah. That's fascinating. That's cool. Yeah. That's awesome. Um, so yeah, you see so your company's fuse consulting and you, it's specifically about science communication and helping researchers and organizers or organizations do that kind of stuff. Right. So, um, I'm guessing if people want to get in contact with you, they can just go to what's the, what's your website? Yeah. So our website is fuseconsulting.ca. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. And happy to chat with anybody, or even if you have questions about how you could do science communication better, we're always happy to chat and kind of share our experiences. So. Yeah. And it's, well, it's been good to talk to you even, even when we first met, um, I found it refreshing that you're you know what I mean? You're easy to talk to. You're not like, you don't have this air of, you know, superiority about you that like, you know what I mean? Like it's people, right. but people feel that way about a lot of like researchers and stuff like that. Right. right? They just feel like, oh, this person is very educated and knows what they're talking about. Just because they're educated doesn't mean they know what they're talking about when it comes to like, it's just, that's a, right. you know what yeah. I mean? It's just another way of thinking. Right. So that's right. No, yeah. that's awesome. So yeah, I appreciate you coming on, man. This was great. Hey, was, thanks so much for the opportunity. I really uh, appreciate it the invitation yeah no it was cool i wasn't sure how we were going to do this because there's just so many ways to approach it i knew i was going to get off track but it turned out so (laughs) thanks man we stayed pretty focused yeah i think it was pretty good (laughs) (laughs) thanks a lot for listening guys that was awesome right it's interesting i know it wasn't specifically environmentally sciences related but environmentally sciences what was that (laughs) Uh, I know it wasn't specifically about environmental sciences but it was about science in general which is important to understand right the the key aspect of science so anyways i wanted to do it i I thought it was an interesting conversation matthew's an awesome dude um yeah reach out to him if you need to fuseconsulting.ca i think he said and then uh if you want to contact me have any questions for me i get back to everybody yourforcepodcast at gmail.com i'll definitely get back to you so thanks a lot for listening guys we'll catch you next time